Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? Good. Welcome back from your little mini uh, quarantine, vacation, socially distanced getaway. You had Thank you. Yeah, it was super fun. I went um, for the first time, um, even though I've lived in Maryland all these years, I've never been to Deep Creek Lake in the summer. And um, I've never been ever. So like now it's on my list because everyone looks like they're having so much fun there. It's awesome. I will tell you the positives outweigh the negatives. The positives are it's an e first of all, it's in state, so you don't have to worry about quarantine when you return. Um, the lake is beautiful. The temperatures are about 10 to 20 degrees cooler. Um, the, the boating activities are super fun. Um, just, and, and people in Garrett County are being really great about masks and all of those things. So it's really easy to, um, ensure social distance, but the negatives is it's not a great place to run at all. So I, I really hilly, didn't run. Right? I know. It's, not just hilly, but it's also, um, at least where we were, there's not even a shoulder on the road on which to run. So it's kind of like running on a highway and certainly it's not busy like a highway. It's a small, you know, lake town, but there are a lot of people up there right now. And so I, I did not feel comfortable running at all. And maybe there are spots to run and anyone who's listening, feel free to write us and let us know what those are. But in terms of just going out for an easy five mile run, it's, it was hard to find. And then I also had this memory and I, I don't know if you know this, but I know what, I know what you're going to okay. tell me. Are you going to talk about our, our friend who, who injured his Achilles there? Yes. Yes. Oh I was just, I was right okay. to add that. I was going to say that's every time <laughs> I think of running in deep Creek and anytime any of our runners, we have some runners who actually have been in deep Creek this summer and every time before they go, I give them that warning. So yes, our, our friend, uh, Lee Firestone, who I'm sure hopefully won't mind us sharing. I think he shared with us before here had a, you know, had a torn Achilles tendon and he attributed it to being in deep Creek for a good amount of time and running on those Hills and just kind of that change of terrain. So every time somebody goes to deep Creek, I would say, be careful of the Hills, walk yeah. the hills or be careful. It's a sudden and change from what we're used to. For sure. And Lee Firestone, just for those who don't know him, he is a local podiatrist who's been on our podcast before and expert in all things feet. So for him to injure his Achilles and be out for months as a result of running for a week in deep Creek certainly freaked me out. And so that, that too did not inspire me to do too much running, but I was only there for a few days and I was busy um, doing all kinds of goofy lake activities. So I, I want to share a quick story. I actually posted about it on our Instagram account. Um, so I'm sorry for being duplicitous, but it's, it's a good story. I, um, we had a rent in a boat and we had water skis that came with the boat and my son and my husband who are both great snow skiers and just, they're very coordinated when it comes to that kind of stuff. They both got up on the first try. Neither of them had ever water skied and they did it so adeptly and it, it made, made it look so easy and they were having a blast. So I wanted to do it too. And I knew I'd probably struggle a little bit because co coordination is not always my thing. So I, um, I, I got the right skis. I had to find skis that fit my small feet and we exchanged the skis and I jumped in, I, I jumped in the water and I tried to, um, get them on and I get in position and to get in position a water ski, you have to like, it's very awkward. So these big skis and you like kind of sit in the water and you wait, I'm holding the rope. And my friend Joel was driving the boat and we're communicating. And I kept getting up, falling down, getting up, falling down. And my kids 
are watching. And at that moment, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Not necessarily because I'm really enjoying getting up and falling down, but because I really want to try this and at least try and succeed. And even if I don't, I want at least to know looking back that I did my best. And I had an audience. So at first I felt guilty taking up this time and space because, you know, when people are watching you, you just feel apologetic. Like, I'm sorry. And that's how I felt awkward. Everyone's staring at me like, come on, come on. Everyone's giving tips. But I, I just kept going. So it took me eight tries up, down, up, down. But I knew, I knew it would click eventually. And so on the eighth try, um, the boat goes and I like slowly rise out of the water. And I had like the biggest smile on my face because it was so exhilarating to achieve something that you thought you couldn't do as a 47 year old woman. And also it was kind of challenging, but like once I was up, it was, it felt so free and easy. And so then I did it again and again, and each time it felt easier and easier. And it's like riding a bike and now I know how to water ski and it's super fun. I can't wait to do it again. So lesson. Yeah, it was awesome. And great lesson. It was a great lesson easily, but the biggest rewards come when it doesn't come so easily. Yes. And then what was really cool was my daughter who was only going to stick to tubing. Um, then without hesitation, when I got back in the boat, she said, I'm going to go next. And she jumped in the water and the skis were way too big for her little narrow feet. But she tried, I think it was like four or five times before, because the skis kept falling off. So it wasn't, it was a no-go, but I was just looking at her trying over and over. And I just thought, I, I, I really love that she's doing this. And I hope that she always is this way where she tries things, even if she doesn't succeed and keeps going because persistence is, you know, what do they say? You can have a lot of talent, but if you don't have persistence, you can't go anywhere. So I don't have a lot of talent in a lot of things, but I'm good at persistence. And uh, I think that's a skill that any kid can, can learn and do. I agree. I love that. Um, I love that Ella saw you and that you set such a good example and changed her mind. So that's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. So anyway, moving on, uh, speaking of persistence, we're persisting into our, uh, what is it? Fifth month? I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> four, four and, and a half year. months of quarantine and fourth infinity. <laughs> yeah. Pandemic life. And it's like, we're all sort of do you feel like every time it's like the finish line keeps moving and each time the finish line moves, like at first we talked about it as a marathon. So now I'm thinking of it more of as like a 50 mile, 50 Not, mile race. It's, ultra like, it's like, it's like the Barkley race where you just keep running and running and running until like the last person's standing. You don't know how long, you don't know how long you're going to run. It's like the backyard ultra that Mike Wardian did that we talked about on our podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, where you were just running against somebody else. You didn't know how long it was. I mean, that's what I feel like is we just don't know. And, uh, it's, I, I feel like, like when that finish line keeps moving, when it, whether it has to do with races or schools or, you know, when a race is going to be back, when is school going to be back? When is, you know, when are we going to go back to work? And when are we going to go back to this, like that keeps moving out farther and farther. And every time that happens, like there's a whole new wave of emotions and adapting and readjusting expectations that takes place. It's like very uh, unsettling. It's hard to get, it's hard to get into like a, like a feel comfortable. It sure is because the hits keep on coming and there were a couple of big hits this week. There were, there was too much. The first hits were expected and that was the cancellation of Marine Corps marathon. I know people are super disappointed, um, but 
really, we, we shouldn't be surprised. And we talked about why last week and it still sucks. You called it, you called it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, I don't want to call it, but it's, it's pretty logical that you can't gather a huge group of people in Arlington County sharing porta potties and things like that and expect a race. And, and not even a large, a large gathering. We also got news that um, some of the smaller marathons that take place on the CNO canal here uh, that are directed by our friend Jay Wind, who puts on really nice, smaller, really hometown races that are, are more amenable to social distancing. And if, if, if any races are able to kind of adhere to those, those standards, those would be the races. And those races, unfortunately, for September and October were also canceled this week because after conferring with all the volunteers and the people that helped put on the races, they decided it just could not be done safely for the participants, for the volunteers, for the people who use the trails, the, the, the canal, and, and unfortunately were canceled, which is, is really disappointing. We have a lot of runners who are kind of pegging their last hopes on some smaller races like that, and now those are off too. Yeah, so while there still are some smaller races all around the country that are still a go with marathons, and there's even a Facebook group out there for those interested, it's called something like races that are still not canceled that you can join and kind of follow along. And people are reporting from all these different states that there are small races that are still going. Um, but we would also suggest taking a look at each state's guidelines because at the end of the day, the health department, the state guidelines, are, the county guidelines are really what is driving the bus. As much as a race director wants to put on a race, if he or she is, is not able to due to those guidelines, and that's what's going to be the deciding factor. So maybe do a little bit of research before signing up for a, a smaller race that's out there just because... It, you know, it's, 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 you don't, not only do you not want to invest the money in, in the emotional energy, but there are a lot of logistics involved, especially if you have to quarantine before or after entering these states from your state. So just know that there probably are a couple of other moving parts that may not be presented on the race website when you hear a rumor of a race existing. And, and if you want to talk it out, always feel free to email us at julianlisa at runfatherandfaster.com. We, we do have some runners that are planning on running some smaller races and, um, so far, they're still going, but we also recognize that things have been changing by the day, by the minute, and speaking of other news that's really devastating in our community, our school system, Montgomery County Public Schools, a huge school system, um, decided to go all virtual until um, the end of first semester, which is in January, and with that, they completely canceled all fall sports, and that's really, really sad. It's understandable. We understand why the decision was made, but it doesn't take away from the sadness we feel for these kids and uh, the coaches. The coaches are passionate about what they do. There are many of whom are volunteers, and I particularly feel for the seniors, especially those where, you know, whether it's their last season of a sport they love or their last season of a sport they love on which they were relying for a scholarship. There's just so many ramifications for so many kids. Sports to, for them is their lifeline and to not have that right now is just devastating. And we, we are trying to figure out how we can su support these kids and we're, we're working on it. That's all we're going to say is we're, we, we want to do something because we feel very strongly that even though we can't control these decisions, we certainly can control how we respond to these decisions. And one of the things that we always encourage 
our kids to do is, is movement because that's what helps us and that has been integral in helping all of us through this pandemic is movement. And our kids, um, especially those with, who are living through this devastating news, need movement, we feel, to, to really be able to cope through this challenging time. Absolutely. And, and one of the nice things about running and some other individual sports that we can still do now uh, is that you don't need the, the field or the team or, you know, the coach and the group practices. You can still, there are still things that we and our kids and those kids who are looking at sports can do. It's not going to replace it, but, um, but like you said, movement is, is, is therapy for all of us and we all need it. And need some structure. We've just, my uh, youngest just uh, got back into soccer practices and the coach is doing socially distanced soccer practices, very well planned out. Kids are, have their own grid on the field and they don't really get close to each other. They may do some kicking drills or something where they're kicking far across the field. But, um, and she's been so happy just to have that, even though it means waking up early and going out in the heat for an hour and a half or two hours, she's really liked she said having that interaction with the other kids on the team and that structure. And I've talked to the parents and we all agree that just having that normalcy and that structure and a coach and teammates is, is really important. So even if they're not playing the games and they're not, we don't know what's going to happen. This is a, a, you know, a, a, like a, 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 not a school team, but a, I would call it a rack, whatever, like another, an outside league. Um, so they haven't decided yet what's going to happen with the season, but, like everything else, we can kind of predict where it likely will go. And even if they can't have the games and tournaments, they can at least have that structure. And so I think that's what we'd like to do. And like you said, we'll keep people posted. But I think having that, even if there aren't competitions and formal races or games, that kids should still keep moving and have that structure and that outlet in their lives. For sure. And so should adults. And we, we've gotten a couple emails from our runners this week just feeling like another layer of, now this has been canceled, now this has been canceled, and we feel you, we hear you, and we, we understand. But we really want you to know, for those who are running, that we can set individual goals for ourselves and lean on your coaches, whether it's us or other coaches, lean on your running partners, even if you're not physically running with them, share your accomplishments, share your struggles, and set those goals for yourself. And if you need help setting a goal, talk to us because personal goals are meaningful. That's what this is all about anyway. A race time is not because you expect to win the race. The race time is about your personal goal. So take the race out of it. You still have that. You still can have a sense of accomplishment and achieve whatever is important to you. So maybe that personal goal is to be able to run your fastest mile um, or maybe that personal goal is to be able to run your longest distance. I'm going to give a shout out to our friend um, and former client, Karen Ryan, who just turned 50 this week. And her personal goal was for her 50th birthday to run a 50K. And that's what she did the other day. And I thought that was terrific. And what a great way to set a goal that has nothing to do with a race, but is a personal achievement. So, And going back um, to Steve McGilvery had talked about on our podcast, um, you know, when we had him on my, my race, my rules. So you can make up your own, you know, whatever your, your race is, uh, you make up, make up your own rules. And I, I do think that there's some, um, something to be said for taking yourself out of this um, kind of race to find a race. So I, I, we've seen it a lot with people who will contact us and say, okay, my, my marathon was just canceled. 
where can I go? Where can I travel? What can I do? Like what's still on? Okay. Maybe I'll, you know, travel across the country to do this small one that looks like it's still going to be on. And then that one gets canceled. And then there's another one, but we don't know if that one's going to happen. And it's just like this constant chase to get to a race or like this desperation of like, let me find anything that's still on. And, and it's, it's, I think leading to a lot of anxiety and a lot of disappointment when, when they can be canceled. We haven't seen one go yet. So let's just say that, you know, we hope that there are a few that are on the calendar that say they're going to go. We hope that they happen, but we haven't seen one happen yet. So, Except for a, a marathon, a marathon. Oh, marathon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marathon. Yeah. Some smaller races have been able to pull off some socially distanced 5k, 10k, some shorter ones. Um, so that, but, but marathon. And I think, you know, so I would love to see one happen, but I think that there's something to be said to saying it's kind of acceptance of, okay. I may not get my marathon this year. And even, uh, I, I think I see it a lot with our runners who are really trying to get a BQ time and they really want to get that official BQ from a race that you're not going to get in a virtual race. And um, what I've said to some of them who've brought that up is, well, we don't even know what Boston qualifying is going to look like. And since we are a Boston podcast, Boston marathon podcast, I'd like to touch on that for just a second. And um, you know, Boston registration usually opens in September, the second week in September. I can't imagine how they're going to open registration the second week in September when we have no idea what April is going to look like. So for all of those who are really wanting to get a BQ, we, we get it. We know you can, we know you will, but that desperation to get it and that, that urgency, that sense of urgency, I wouldn't say desperation, but that sense of urgency to try to get it before September 12th, it, 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 who knows if it's even going to matter for next year. And it kind of reminds me of your story of last year, you know, you went and really kind of went out on a limb and, and took a chance and went to run the last chance uh, to BQ marathon. We're really, you know, wanting to get that BQ, having no idea what was going to happen this year. And you really put it all out there, you know, emotionally, physically, everything. And you went out and you got it. And now look where we are. So I would hate to see, I, I don't want anyone to feel that sense of urgency when we just don't even know, what Boston qualifying is going to look like for the next couple of years. I look if 2021 looks different for whatever reason, if it's a smaller field, if there's, if it's just elites, if it's whatever, what's 2022 going to look like then? And what is the qualifying window going to be when there have been no marathons? So we just don't know. So I think there is something to be said for taking yourself out of that kind of uh, look at it as like a merry-go-round or that kind of that push and pull and push and pull and just taking yourself out and asking yourself, what are my personal goals? What, what is it going to be? Is it going to be, I'm going to run a virtual race. Is it going to be, I'm going to, you know, get my mile time down. Is it going to be, I'm just, I'm going to run consistently five days a week and stay healthy. Is it, I'm going to be, you know, focus on some other aspect of my running, which brings me to, um, and, and neither of us are, are just for personal reasons, big fans of Strava. Um, but I have seen, and I mentioned this last week on the podcast, that the Strava challenges, for at least for my son who cycles, has been so motivating for him and has gotten him up early every morning and plotting out uh, you know, uh, rides and, and mileage strategy and figuring out his rest days and his ride days. And it's been really neat to watch. So if that's something that, that motivates you, finding something like that. But um, the downside to that is, as everyone who probably, who's listening to this podcast probably knows, uh, technology has its, has its um, shortcomings. And this week, Garmin has had a, um, it sounds like a ransomware attack, but it's basically their, their servers are down, their network is down. And that has led to no uploads to um, any connected 
devices. So from Garmin Connect can't upload to final search for us as coaches. So we're not able to see our runners stats right away. Um, can't upload to Strava. So all those people who are doing those challenges or who are counting on that um, social support of uh, the kind of social networking support for their runs aren't having that. Uh, but I kind of think it's been a good thing of like back to basics of like, let's just run to run for ourselves and make it count for ourselves. But it's, it's a good, uh, it's a good, to me, a good illustration of how much we've come to rely on data, which is a good thing and a bad thing. I couldn't agree more. I think it's really, it's really a testament to how it's that whole, if, if a tree falls in the forest and you're not there to the tree fall. And I've had to send out emails or, or final search comments to all of our clients just saying, um, Hey, Garmin's down. I believe you. I know you ran. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, we'll just feel free to let me know how it went. Or if you have no comment, that's fine. And, um, yeah, I, I think before we had final surge, that's what we would do is we'd always check in with our runners and say, how did it go? And most would just respond with how it felt. Like, you know, sometimes people would give us stats and splits, but most people just responded with how it felt. And yes, it felt good today. I felt strong. I felt, um, but now that we, you know, we rely too on, on the stats, like so much of it is looking at the stats and I think it was just a good reminder to go back, but yes, it does. It's funny to watch some of the, you know, the comments and people's reactions of like, well, I'm not going to go do a run this morning because it doesn't count. Or, you know, I was looking, I was trying to look up information on it and um, I, somebody said, go on Twitter and search for Garmin and see some of the Twitter conversations. <laughs> so I'm never on Twitter, but I did. They said to you, it was actually one of our clients, Sam Spolter, who I adore, who's always on top of all this stuff. And she said, go on Twitter. If you want a good diversion from work today? go on Twitter, just be warned, you're going to go down the rabbit hole. And of course I did. And it was just fascinating to me. I mean, it was split, you know, most people saying like a good number of people saying like, come on people, like let's get a grip. Oh, the data is all still there. It's not, hasn't disappeared. And you know, your run still counts with people saying, well, I, I can't see any of my stats today. and oh, I'm not going to run tomorrow because you know, it's not going to, it's not going to count for anything. And it's just, it was, it was very, uh, it was, it was interesting to read. It's quite remarkable. I totally agree. And, you know, while the timing sucks, because, I mean, things are, are tough enough running through a pandemic with no races and now Garmin's down. At the same time, it's so hot out, so humid. No one's runs right now are reflecting their fitness potential because everyone's paces are slower than what they would ordinarily be in this sticky, sticky weather for those who live in the Northeast. So, just, you know, maybe you don't want the data. Maybe it's better just to run by feel right now. I know for me, I don't look at my watch during the summer. Just, I, I look at my watch to see how many miles I've run, but I never look at my pace. It's A, it's depressing, and B, it's not reflective of, of my fitness or my effort. I have to run by feel. And the runs right now, I mean, I feel like I'm running through soup. And um, it's, it's just, it's a tough time to run in general. Every year it's tough in the DC area to run through this. And I know I've shared this before, but some of my best races, fall marathons have been developing fitness by running in really slowly through soupy weather without much speed work. So just know if you're one of those people that you're really struggling and you are frustrated by not being able to hit paces, 
don't worry about it and recognize that your fitness is there, your fitness is developing, you're certainly developing a lot of blood volume by running through this heat and humidity. And just because you're not running at higher speeds doesn't mean your body's forgotten. It's all about effort. And, and don't apologize for your paces right now, like, oh, I was super slow because it was hot. No. Oh, I put in the best I could do and, and ran to my fullest potential on an on a real feel 90 degree, you know, 65 dew point day. Like what, you know, what do you, what do we expect from ourselves? We're not machines. We're not robots. This is not prime weather. And that's why the elites don't train in this area in the heat and humidity. I mean, a lot of the elites, they go to places like Mammoth Lakes to train in the summer and cooler places. And there's a reason for that. So don't feel like your, your fitness at all is compromised because of this. I needed that reminder. So thank you. Cause I was just thinking during <laughs> my run of like how, like, I don't think I could ever go any faster. And I don't think I was like, I don't think I could ever do a rate. Like I, I, when you said like your fitness is still there, you can, doesn't mean you're always going to, you know, I, I definitely feel that. So I needed that reminder. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. My, my, my fitness right now, I feel like I can barely run, but I know that once fall hits, I'll feel so much better. And if not, then maybe I, I overtrained over the summer. And, oh, and that, there's one more thing with heat. You may feel a lot more exhausted these days. That too is a reflection of your recovery. It's really important when running, even though you're going slower and you're trying to exert the same effort, your paces are slower because it's hot out, you may need more recovery. You may need an extra day of recovery between runs you may need a lot more hydration than what you normally take in, but you also may need more sleep than normal because it is super fatiguing to be out there running in this weather. And then you, of course, we all expect from ourselves what we always do. You come back from your run. Ideally, you stretch a little bit. You take your shower. You start your day. You may feel really, really exhausted. And that too is a product of running in this extraordinarily heat, hot and humid weather. Yep. And electrolytes too. Don't underestimate the electrolytes. If you're getting headachey or feeling that fatigue or um, achiness, uh, check your electrolytes and either, you know, some kind of supplement, whether that's noon in your drink or a cap or just adding them to your diet. But I, I notice that a lot in the summer. If I don't actually take a, a um, salt stick cap the night before the run, usually the morning of, and if not one during the run, as soon as I get home, take one. Um, if I don't, I am kind of a wreck the rest of the day. I like get a migraine. I'm tired. I'm takes me several days to get back to recovery. So those electrolytes are really important too. Oh, for sure. That's a great reminder. I, I have gotten a few headaches over the past couple of weeks and I'm sure that's what it's attributable to. Totally yeah. agree. So speaking of running by effort and personal goals, we are really thrilled to welcome a dear friend of ours onto the podcast today. He is Eric Melby, and Eric is one of our clients, but before that, he um, has always been a friend of ours, and um, we have had a number of requests to have Eric on the podcast, and we thought that this would be the perfect time to have him on the podcast during a week like this when there's just a lot of tough news uh, to recognize that everybody has a personal journey and everybody has setbacks. And everybody, as a result, can have a victorious comeback. And Eric's story is incredible. Uh, first of all, Eric is 72 years old. And he started running. 72 years young. 72, absolutely young. And he started running um, right before turning 50. And he's an incredible athlete. 
Um, he did run before in college. Um, he is naturally athletic, a naturally talented runner, but that's not why we're having him on the podcast. We wanted to have him on a, the podcast because of his effervescent personality and his amazing approach to his running, which we very much believe is the secret to his success and why he continues to have tremendous achievements at age 72 in spite of having a really, really big health scare um, after achieving his PR and being in the shape of his life. And he will talk more about that and what happened after that. And uh, we just really love chatting with him. And we hope that our listeners learn a lot from him, as did we. I've known Eric personally for over 10 years, and I still learn a lot today after talking with him. And I know you did too, Lisa. Yeah, I love, I just, I love Eric's, um, like you said, his effervescent <laughs> personality is at it, but he's always, he's always so positive. He always looks on the bright side of things. He's always looking forward. He's always looking at, you know, what, what can versus what can't. And I've always loved just his kindness and he really cares about people and he'll talk more about this, but how much he enjoys running with people. And, and that's because um, I think people enjoy running with him and just knowing him. He's, he's such a, he's very caring. And uh, so he's just a good person. And the fact that he's also an amazing runner is a bonus. Absolutely. And we also have had the honor of coaching his daughter, Alexandra, who lives in Seattle. I love it when we have like parent, um, child or siblings or, um, you know, we, I, I think that's a lot of fun. We have another uh, pair of a, a, a mother-in-law or kind of, you know, a, the girlfriend of the son and the mother who, who we coach. Following that? <laughs> Everyone following that? The girlfriend yeah, so of the it's, son it's, of the... It's, it's the mom of the, <laughs> and her son's girlfriends or like, you know, very close to kind of mother-in-law status. Um, and, uh, you know, she got her into running and now we coach both of them and it's, that's, she, she inspired her to run a marathon. So she's going to run the, the daughter-in-law is going to run her first, hopefully run her first marathon this year or when we get back to racing, um, along with her mother-in-law. So I think that's, I just love those stories where it's, and, and, um, Eric has inspired both of his daughters to, to run and, uh, you know, to, to be active. So I think it was awesome. Yeah. So without further ado, we are going to hand it over to Eric. But before we go, we have one more announcement. And that is uh, the Pandemic Improvement Project Round 2. We wanted to quickly announce our winners before we go. Yep. All right. So we've got top three and we've got some big improvements again. We have Warda Daya, who had a 15% increase. She went from a 950 mile to an 821 mile. She is our first place winner this round. Second place, 11% improvement was Lena Lindsay. And she went from a 920 to an 828 mile. I mean, this is, you know, we had four weeks, which was not a lot of time and hot weather. So this is like, we always tell our runners not to kind of judge their time trials in the summer. And these people all did this in the summer. And then in third place, is uh, you know a friend and uh, one of our, our runners and uh, somebody in our community that we really respect, uh, Tina Sheasley. And she went from a 1512 to a 1350 mile, which was a 9% increase. So those were our top three, all very impressive. And again, especially in the summer, to be able to do that is, um, is doubly impressive. I think those, all those runners would be even faster if they did that in cooler weather. 
absolutely. So we will be sending prizes to all three of these runners, as well as adding up the um, improvement times for all of the participants and making, as promised, a cumulative donation to MANA, a food bank in our area, um, as a result of that participation. We will be doing pandemic improvement project round three, but we're going to wait till the fall. Yeah, it's too hot to do it now. Yeah, no point. No point in doing it now. All right. Well, Lisa, I hope you have a great week. Thank you. You too, Julie. Bye. Bye. We are really excited to announce that we have our first sponsor. R&J Sports, which is located in Maryland, is the first sponsor of the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Even though R&J Sports is a locally owned running store, they do ship nationwide and have a website from which you can order, rnjsports.com. If you go onto the website and purchase something over $100, just put in the code RFFFEATURES, F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S, and they'll throw in a free pair of feature socks with your purchase. You can also call the store at 301-881-0021 and over the phone, they'll provide some terrific guidance on which shoes are right for your foot. While it's not the same as a in-person fitting, for many of us, we can't do that yet. So this is a great option. In fact, one of our runners in China recently contacted the store and they provided her with some great advice and she was able to get a replacement pair of shoes that's working for her very well. So again, call RNJ Sports at 301-881-0021. Let them know that you're with the Run Farther and Faster podcast. And if you make a purchase of over $100, they'll throw in a free pair of socks or you can go on their website. Thanks so much, RNJ, for sponsoring our podcast. Eric Melby, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so happy to have an opportunity to talk with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, Julie and Lisa, this is uh, terrific. I'm usually just listening to you while I'm running, so I'm not sure I wait along on the other side of the mic, but I'm happy to do this for both of you. Well, we have to say we, we, we asked you to be on first because we both admire you and think your story is amazing, but we've had requests, so um, you're, <laughs> you're, you're a popular guy, and, and those who know your story um, want to hear from you, so thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to us today. Both of you are terrific, and uh, so I'm happy to do it. So we want to give our listeners a little bit of history about you. So why don't you, we start off and just share with us uh, where you're from, where you grew up, where you live now, your age, and how many kids you have, and grandkids, and if you're comfortable, what you do for a living besides running. Okay. Well, I actually met my wife, Pamela, when we, in London when we were both studying there on a junior semester abroad, and she apparently asked me where I was from, and apparently I hesitated, and she's thinking, who doesn't know where they're from? And I was wondering if I was a little sketchy, but anyway, um, my father was in the State Department, so I was born overseas, I grew up overseas, I... I spent most of my childhood uh, overseas, and I guess 14 of the 18 years before I came to college, I was uh, living outside the United States. So, but I've been living in Maryland for the last uh, 30 plus years, so I guess now I consider Maryland as home. And we have uh, two daughters, grown daughters, who both have um, children. So we have two granddaughters in Seattle and a 
grandson here in Washington who arrived in December, so it's been terrific having a grandchild in the Washington area. And I'm proud to say that both my daughters are runners, and I, I think they got it from me because I was running before they were running. Um, and so that's great. I've actually uh, twice, uh, several times run marathons with my older daughter, Alexandra, and I've done a number of half marathons with my uh, younger daughter, uh, Sarah. And what I do for a living is I spent a long time in the federal government in various agencies at the Agency of Peace Corps first, then the Agency for International Development, and then I somehow wangled a transfer to the International Energy Agency in Paris, and that was really tough working there for five years. And then I went to the State Department and ended up my government career working for uh, five years on the National Security Council staff, first for Colin Powell and then for Brent Scott. And then um, about 25 years ago, a few of us set up an international business consulting firm, and that's what I, I still do. And I'm 72 years old now. Can you I repeat always, that one more time? How old, how old are you? I am 72. <laughs> okay. So for those of you listening, um, Eric is 72, but you can't see him, but he certainly doesn't look 72. And um, we, we definitely want to share his story and his, his history because it, it's quite remarkable. So Eric, thank you for that intro and for sharing um, all of the things you do. And we will add that you have two girls, Sarah and Alexandra, and, and we have the honor of coaching Alexandra, who um, lives on the other side of the country. And um, like you, she's such a strong runner. And we know we've seen Sarah at many races and we know she'll be back um, post baby um, doing what she loves as well when races return. So we agree with you wholeheartedly that your positive influence as a parent has um, caused your two girls to be um, such avid runners as well. And that's a testament to you and Pamela as well. Well, my, my aim is one day to run a marathon with both daughters. So we, we think that's, that's definitely something you will do based on what we've seen and how both of your daughters run. We have no doubt that will happen. So um, you're busy. You have your own consulting firm. You, you travel. You have kids. You have grandkids. And you're, you're doing it all. But you also have a passion for running. And since this is a running podcast, um, we want to share your running story. So why don't you share with us when you started running and what that looked like um, when you started and, and what that developed into. So I ran a bit when I was a child, actually. Uh, I spent my middle school years in a former British colony in South America, now Guyana. Those of you who listen to, um, have ever listened to Kojo Nandi on uh, WAMU. Love Kojo. Yes, well, I got, have gotten to know him over the past couple of years, and he was in class with my brother in Guyana when it was a British colony. And I said, Kojo, how did you remember his name and all that? And he said, 
Well, it was easy because you guys were one of the few white people in the school, so you stood out. <laughs> and there, I mean, they didn't have track. You ran on grass barefoot. And that's, so I, that's where I first started uh, running, but not seriously. And Did you run barefoot? I ran barefoot, yes. We played soccer barefoot, everything. It was, uh, and, uh, and then when I, in college, I, I was a sprinter. I, I don't say I was a good sprinter, but I used to be always amazed at people who were running. I ran the 100 and 220, and then I'd see people training for the 800 and the mile, and I'd say, no, that's way too much effort. I don't want to run that kind of a distance. And, and then after college, I, I jogged and things like that, I mean, but nothing serious. It wasn't until, and I remember the date itself. I mean, I, I knew people ran marathons and things like that, but on the day after Marine Corps, in it would have been 1997, I was listening on NPR, and Al Gore, who was vice president, had run the Marine Corps Marathon with two of his daughters. And I'm saying, wait a minute, he's way busier than I am. He's vice president of the United States. He's probably at least twice my size, and he finished the marathon. I should be able to. So I started running. Um, and said, I'm going to try, and I was 49, and I said, I, I want to run a marathon in my 50th birthday. So I started running. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I did all my long runs at marathon pace. And, uh, I mean, I didn't know that energy gels existed. I didn't know that Montgomery County Roadrunners existed. Um, but suffice to say, to the surprise of my wife and my other family members, I survived. I ran five hours and two minutes. I felt miserable for probably a week or more thereafter. And then I got the bug. But it wasn't until, I would say, three or four years later that I um, saw in um, some um, email chain that um, Mike Broderick was, had a training program that was called Boston Bound. So I emailed him and I said, do you take old people like me? I was in my, I guess, early 50s. And he responded right away, sure, come on down. We meet on Saturdays in the parking lot in downtown Bethesda. So that's where, and then I found out about um, Montgomery County Roadrunners and XMP. I found out about all the things I was doing wrong. And, uh, and gradually, I, my times improved. And I met a, just a terrific group of people. And I'm not sure whether it was the running I enjoyed more or the people that I was running with. Uh, and actually, that's where I first met Julie, uh, because she was in my pace group, and I, had, I knew nothing about pacing or anything like that. When someone said, what pace group do you belong in? I gave this kind of blank look because I didn't know what they meant. Um, did, you know what, did, did you know at that point what the Boston Marathon was? I knew what the Boston Marathon was, yes, and I, I never dreamed that I might qualify for it, but I think 
the first time I qualified must have been in 2003, and then I ran it the first time in 2004. So you started, you qualified for the Boston Marathon. Um, how many marathons had you run before you qualified for Boston? I know you, ran, you said you ran your first one in 1997 in five hours. So you must have taken a lot of time off between 97 yes, well, and... So, um, it was 98 I ran my first uh, Marine Corps marathon in five hours. And then in, uh, the next year, I ran it in 401. So I cut off um, a whole hour. I think I had gotten some books out and read about it. But... Um, I still didn't really understand, uh, but I, I did more speed work and things like that. You know? But again, I was, I was just running on my own, but I managed to cut off uh, an hour of my time. And I think uh, it took me maybe five or six years to, um, to qualify because I was just running one marathon um, a year back and, then. And during that time between um, when you ran a 401 and you saw that it was possible to continue to cut down on your marathon time through proper training and when you eventually did qualify, was it a huge focus of yours or was it just something that you thought would be really nice? Well, the, um, the marathoning was a, a big focus, but um, again, I, I never thought I was going to actually qualify for Boston. And back in those days, I think you got the extra 59 seconds. And so the first time I qualified for Boston, and I believe actually it was at uh, Big Sur, and I, my qualifying time was three hours and 40 minutes and plus and 59 seconds. And I think I used up maybe 30 of those 59 seconds. <laughs> and, so, and that was in 2003 that you ran a 340? Yes. Okay. And those so are back should... in the days when there was no cutoff. Yeah. There was, wasn't a cutoff. You could, you could. No, 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 exactly. You could sign up in February and run yeah. in March. Right. So we didn't, you didn't have to worry about the buffer. You just knew you were in that range of nine seconds over that, that your qualifying time that you would be able to run. Right. Right. So since this is a Boston Marathon podcast, mm -hmm. um, share with us, what was your, what year was your first Boston that you ran and what was it like for you? So it was 2004. I really didn't know much about the course. And, and so I had not been prepared for the hills. And it turned out that that particular Monday, the temperature, there was still running and starting the race in, um, at noon. And uh, so and the temperature um, at the start was about 85 degrees. And, so I, I watched TV in the morning. You know, I got up early, five o'clock, and I'm watching TV. And they're replaying um, tape from a few years before that when it was also very hot. And runners were being put in ambulances and taken away. Psychologically, that wasn't, the, uh, wasn't all that motivating. But nevertheless, it was my first. And, and I think there were elite runners who dropped out, but I... I did um, stick it out, and I, um, I think I, I did it in, um, so the qualifying time was uh, 3.40, but I, I ran it in about 4.07, and, um, and it was, you know, very hot, but I was ecstatic at the end because I had finished the Boston Marathon. 
And when, when you finished it, did you immediately think I need to come back here and do this again? Or what, what did you, what did you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I, I was, I, I knew I had some confidence that, you know, with the right training and all that, I could uh, get better and, uh, and return. So, and I, I didn't really realize the, the difference in the time between men and women for a particular age group because I went to my crowd in Hopkins and, and there were a couple of guys my age and then all these women who were like 25 years younger and were saying, are we in the right place? <laughs> And that has been sort of your MO with the Boston Marathon every year, right? You always end up in a corral with women who are much younger and you and a few guys. Is that correct? That's correct. And, um, you know, it's it's not a discouraging factor. (laughs) Good strategy. (laughs) We're on to you. So you, how many Bostons have you run since that first hot Boston? Uh, so I've run 10 more since then. So, so for this a total year, of 11. Okay, so this would have been your 12. 12 your, the correct. virtual will be your 12. Yeah. So um, each year you've, you've gotten faster um, since running the first Boston. But if you could pick one Boston Marathon that was m- most meaningful or special to you, which one would it be out of all the years you've run it? Um, I guess it would be uh, 2010 because that's my all-time PR uh, was in 2010 at Boston. And what was that? What was that time? uh, 3.20.26. And uh, I remember being at Fire and Ice and, you know, remember this is before smartphones and things like that. I couldn't remember what I had run in New York. Uh, just uh, a few months before, six months before, I called up my daughter, Sarah, and, and said to her, get on the computer and look up my time from New York. <laughs> and I had beaten it by seven seconds. <laughs> and so <laughs> I said, I was very happy. That's awesome. How old were you when you achieved that PR in 2010? I was uh, 62. So at 62 years old, you ran a 320, and what was that age graded? Do you remember? I don't. I don't no. either, but yes. I mean, fast, very fast. You know, that's inc- not age graded. That's incredible. At 62 years old, you ran a 320 the same year in New York and at Boston, both very hard courses. So you're, you're remarkably fast and a very talented runner, but you're also a really, um, committed runner. You, you train hard, you love the process, and what I love most about the way you train is that you aren't fixated on goals. You're fixated on the process, and if you could just share with our listeners how that works for you and what running does for you, I think it would help people better understand why you're so successful. I don't know that I really have a, you know, a special technique. I mean, I I really, ever since I got um, involved in with the Montgomery County Roadrunners Club and particularly their experience marathon program, I mean, I just enjoy the people that I have met there. They're incredibly motivating and 
motivating both in their running, but in what they do in their life. And it's, um, it's just quite inspirational. And I must say, I'm, I'm, I've always been among the older people that I'm running with, as you mentioned, but I've never gotten the sense that they're thinking, who's this old guy with us? You know, we're all, everyone's treated me like um, I'm part of the group. And so that's been really wonderful. And so even if I wasn't going to race, I mean, I would keep up the running with the group because it's, it, it, it's hard to describe it, but it's quite satisfying. And I, I would say that um, since I started running in, in the groups, um, almost all my friends are um, runners. And, you know, I have a Facebook page, but I reject all the requests from my non-running friends. That's just <laughs> <laughs> what I do because, you know, people, that's just the group that I'm interested in being with. And it, what is so nice is that, you know, my wife has also gotten to know so many of the runners. And we've been to weddings, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. Also, we've traveled with some of the people to races and, and otherwise. I've hiked the Grand Canyon rim to rim in a day with runners and gone on the Inca Trail in Machu Picchu. And they're always with people that I've been running with. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're Eric's non-running friend and you want to be friends on Facebook, you better think <laughs> up running is the, is, is the lesson. Eric, I'm, I'm curious to know just along those lines and um, with the pandemic, you know, and not running with people and, and the groups that we're used to running with, unfortunately, no longer being able to do that. How, how, are, you, how are you managing and how are you um, approaching your running through the pandemic? So as you know, Julie is, has been coaching me since um, last December when I was hoping to, uh, to prepare me for the Tokyo Marathon this past uh, March. And she's continued on coaching me. And the fact that I have to upload my garment and she can see what I've done, that um, gets me out every day, which is good. Um, and I mean, it's very different clearly than running with the groups, but um, by now I, it's really tough to run in my neighborhood and not see someone I know. So we will occasionally stop and, you know, stay six or 12 feet apart and chat. And, and if I'm in on a long talk, then I always have to remember to tell Julie I stopped for 10 minutes because she might wonder, why did you all of a sudden stop? <laughs> I never wonder I know at this point, so it's no worries. But I do like hearing the gossip in Final Surge. Like, I love it when you when you summarize your run for the day and you'd be like, so-and-so had a baby and they're now home from the hospital. Like, you've got like a whole situation that you describe what's going on with everyone, which is really nice. I think it's really sweet. So I, as a coach, really enjoy hearing your narrative. So yeah. keep doing it. Well, and I think that we are in and I, I certainly am, and I think all the runners were incredibly lucky because we can get out there in the pandemic and run. Um, I have friends in Paris during, who said that they were allowed to get out during the pandemic, but they could not be more than a kilometer away from their house. So that's pretty tough, whereas you know, I can go wherever I want and come back as long as I'm 
not uh, you know, running in a group. It does still surprise me to see groups of people running and there must be some really interesting households if all of them are living together that they feel that they can be you know, really tight in a group without any problems. We hear you. We hear you. Um, moving on. <laughs> um, we, so I just, I know we're interviewing you, but I feel like I need to give a little background about some things that happened to us in our running group that sort of explain um, our background a little bit. And that is you and I met in, um, I believe it was 2009, no, 2008 because I ran my first Boston alone in 2007 and I had the privilege of joining Mike Roderick's running group in 2008 and you and I were in a pace group with Mike Shane, Jen Cook, Jim Martin and a few others and it that was transformative for me because it was the first time I had the opportunity to run with other people as well. I always ran solo and Mike was our coach and he was a, an incredible coach, and um, he was taken from us way too soon of lung cancer, and that happened in 2010, mm-hmm. and we were already scheduled, you and me and Jim Martin, to run the New York City Marathon, which was, you were a veteran New York City Marathoner at that point, that was your, I believe your, and still is your favorite marathon. Um, am I correct? The New York City Marathon? No, I mean, uh, I, I would probably put Boston now just because of the okay. aura of Boston. You know? Got it. So, okay. So, but you were like, it, it was a place that you, you ran it every year. I yep. remember it was like right. your marathon. Right. And I was so excited for us to do it together. And then suddenly that changed because in the middle of our training for the New York City Marathon, we learned Within six weeks, our coach was our healthy coach was diagnosed with lung cancer, and from diagnosis to his passing, it was basically a six-week period. And his passing occurred the day before, two days before we were slated to run the New York City Marathon. And in the meantime, the three of us set up a, a fundraising page for lung cancer to support our run because we just. We didn't know what else to do. So we set up this page, Mike, Jim, and Eric, I'm sorry, Julie, Jim, and Eric are going to run the New York City Marathon. And it ended up becoming not just a fundraising opportunity, but it allowed all of the runners in Mike's world to donate and then share a message on the fundraising page that Mike was able to read from the hospital. And I, I was, I mean, that was a long time ago, but that really resonated with me and I know you on yep. little things that we can do that you have no idea what a difference it makes. And for Mike being able to sit in his hospital bed and re- according to his wife, be able to read those messages was a, a very significant, meaningful thing. And um, you and I shared that. And I know that changed me. That, that absolutely and I know it changed you and so that was tough um, we ran the marathon we ran it in his memory and we I mean he so actually uh, Julie I've got to correct you I actually did not run that marathon that's right I, I did come up to it to see you 
because about, um, I don't know, maybe four weeks before the marathon, I got a pain in my groin. That's right. And I went to see a doctor, and he said I had a pelvic stress fracture. And my next question to him was, yes, but can I still run the New York City Marathon? And he said, Eric, even if this was your last chance to qualify for the Olympics, I would not recommend it. So I did not run, but I went up and I saw you and Jim Martin and Jim Cook and the others uh, up in New York. That was when I think I first met you, Eric, was that was that, and I, we still have our picture, I think even on our website of that was the year when we ran. um, And I remember how emotional that was for Julie. And I remember, I think I, that's when I met you or first, first heard of you was, was during that. So that was, and and it was a long time ago, but it doesn't seem very long ago at all. (laughs) Yeah. So, so Mike's memory stays with us and always will because he was a terrific coach, a terrific human. Um, but, um, it sucked. It was a really tough time. And, and then things got a lot tougher. So I'm going to let you take it from from here. And why don't you share what happened soon thereafter? Okay. So um, actually, uh, so this would have been 2009. I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. But uh, what the doctor said, let's just do wait, uh, wait, um, watchful waiting. I said, terrific. But by the summer of uh, 2010, my PSA had been going up, and the advice was to have the surgery. And I said, that's fine, but first I'll do the New York City Marathon. And knowing that I was going to be out of commission for a while, so I had that planned. I didn't realize that I was going to have the pelvic stress fracture. But anyway, I had I came back down to Washington. I uh, went to have the surgery, and the doctors always always say that um, you know there's a two percent chance that things might go wrong, but ninety eight percent fine. And who listens to that? And so, and I it was supposed to be one day in the hospital. Well, things did not go um, well for me, and I ended up by having a lot of internal bleeding, which led to a a pulmonary embolism. And uh, actually, I was lying in my bed there the day of Mike Broderick's funeral. And I was um, thinking about him because, um, you know, he he was no longer with us. But... um, I knew that uh, he had inspired me. And I think one reason why I I probably did uh, make it through the whole situation was that I had a a really strong body from running marathons. And I give Mike um, a lot of um, credit for that. And when they decided that they had to operate because I had this massive clot in my lungs. They brought in their most senior heart surgeon because the younger ones didn't know how to do these operations. And I still remember um, he came in to talk to me before the anesthesiologist came in and all the other medical people were 
kind of um, deferring to him. And I really liked him because uh, my daughter, older daughter, who was seven months pregnant, had flown in from Seattle. And I asked the doctor, is what you're going to do life-threatening? And he looked at me and said, yes, but I think I can do it. And he succeeded in taking out uh, an eight-inch long blood clot from my lungs, which he <laughs> took a picture of and showed it to my wife after the operation. <laughs> and I still have that picture. Yeah. Uh, and then there were a number of complications afterwards, and I picked up an infection in the hospital and stuff like that. Uh, everything that could have gone wrong probably did, but I, I got I got good care, and I still remember. Was, this was on a Thursday, I think, and on Saturday, my daughter Sarah came over to our house, and sitting in the backyard, Julie, you were there with Mike Shane and Jim Martin, because I was supposed to be at home, and you wanted to see how I was doing. <laughs> so, and and that was very touching to me. I mean, at that point, I was um, I not yet had. The surgery to take out the clot and I was in a but it it meant a lot to me and uh, so I would say half the doctors told me you can never run again and the other half said hey you're only alive because you were a runner if you want to do it go do it and so that inspired me and it it took a big effort to get back to um being able first to walk and then to jog and then eventually to run. And I must say, I'd get out on the Capitol Crescent Trail when I was doing little stretches and thinking, oh my God, I hope I don't run into anyone from XMP because you're going to see me walking. Which anyone who would have seen you walking, of course, would have been so incredibly proud and amazed. Uh, but isn't yeah. it amazing how hard we are in ourselves? Right. <laughs> So you, you were you were really really sick. I mean, I I remember seeing you when after all these complications, and it was a really tough time. It was it was a really tough time, and everyone was just so thankful that you came out of this okay. And it a testament to your drive and determination and positivity. There was no question that you were going to resume running. And we had to kind of talk you out of trying to qualify for Boston within a year of having this surgery and the blood clot and the infection. You literally were planning on, you were plotting already your marathon return, not just marathon, but to BQ. So tell us what happened instead and, and what that year looked like post-surgery, because I think there's a lot of people listening who have been through things where in their mind they want to do a certain thing, but their body tells them otherwise. Yeah. Well, I'll say so. The surgery was in November of uh, 2010. I actually signed up for the Experienced Marathon program that started in June of 2011. Um, I remember Julie telling me, Eric, focus on the 5K and 10K if you can do that, but do not try and uh, do a marathon training program. I did not listen to her. 
So but uh, after about six weeks, I dropped out of the marathon training program because I just didn't have it in me. And in the end, I, I did, um, you know, in, in the fall, I was able to do a 5K and uh, also a 10K. And that ill-fated 15K, the chocolate. Um, hot chocolate. Yeah, <laughs> hot chocolate at 15K. Yes, exactly. Right. Oh, my gosh. Wait, let's stop right there. We have to mention the hot <laughs> chocolate. We haven't talked about the hot chocolate yet on this yeah, any of our podcast yeah, episodes. That was, a, that was a very dark time. <laughs> in the running DC running history world but the hot chocolate 5k 15k was an ill uh ill-fated race that happened where it's out of Chicago it's put on by Ram Racing and I know their race in Chicago is great but the one that they tried to put on in DC was abysmal and unfortunately that was your big return to racing this 15k and I remember saying to you Eric this is the best race for your return to racing because it will automatically be a PR because we don't run 15ks often so count on sitting around for two hours before the start in the freezing cold running along the highway with you know semi trucks uh, along <laughs> right, exactly. of us yeah that was uh we didn't count on that so. indian springs highway yes yes <laughs> and i remember you saying after the race i mean you you had a great race and that was completely like the best part of the day for us we were felt responsible for all these runners who this was their goal race and it was just such a bust and we felt so terrible <laughs> about it but seeing you finish a 15K, set that automatic PR, but also you were joking. I don't know if you remember, you were like, well, I didn't die from the blood clot, but I almost died from the hot chocolate race <laughs> from the semi trucks. <laughs> so anyway. Not to be repeated, that experience, yes. No, and not to beat a dead horse, because I think Lisa and I complained about that race yes, so much. Yes, you did. I remember that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ram Racing, I think. Ram Racing sees Julie's name on Facebook and he gets weird. <laughs> yeah, Ram Racing blocked me from all social media platforms. And I believe we were in the Washington Post. I, I think yeah. you were quoted too, right? Yeah. About it? Those are the good old days when the Washington Post covered races that went wrong versus now and there are no races. But anyway, so. You came back, you ran a 15K, and, and that's when I feel like that's when you got your mojo back, was when you saw you could run a, a successful nine-mile or 15K race. And from there, that was kind of when you kicked off your journey, I remember, to um, your comeback to requalify for Boston, because you lost your qualifier after being out right. due, due to everything. So what did that look like, and how did you approach that? So that was then in 2012, um, I was... Um, you know, well, close to a year and a half out from surgery, and I joined the um, XMP program of the Montgomery County Roadrunners. Now, I was in a much slower pace group. I think before the last time I'd run with them, we were in maybe 815, 830 pace group. I was down in the 1015, 1030 pace group, but I met a whole new group of people. And slowly worked my way back up uh, some of the pace groups, and it, it was just wonderful. And I signed up for the 2012 Marine Corps Marathon. And I remember that you, Mike Shane, and um, Bill, Jim Martin, and um, 
Jen Cook said, you would help me get through that and qualify. In fact, I think you ran with me from mile 16 across the 14th Street Bridge. And I still remember we're getting up towards the Capitol and you're looking at your watch and you're saying, Eric, you got to keep up that pace if you want to beat you. And I'm thinking, I'm doing my best. <laughs> that motivated me. And I managed BQ. Uh, I think I did a, um, it was a 403 and I needed a 410 to, um, to BQ. And so, that was an incredible day. I, I remember just, it was so meaningful to see you achieve your goal after everything you went through and achieve a BQ um, and do it with the support of your friends and family. I remember Pamela being out there in so many different spots. And I mean, everyone in the community was cheering you on. And it was such an honor to be able to run part of that race with you. Um, and, and, and I do remember feeling a little uncomfortable because, I mean, Eric, you're, you're already such a motivated runner. I, I kind of felt like such an ass being like, hurry up. I mean, here's, no, no, here's no, what no. you went through, but, <laughs> but you had to make your time. And I knew, I knew you were close. So I was like, you gotta, you gotta pick it up. And, and so I'm glad it all worked out. Um, because yeah, it was, I, yeah, I still remember at the Iwo Jima Memorial, uh, Jim Martin somehow snuck in right behind me and he had a big sign with my name on it saying, He's gonna make it, he's gonna make it, he's getting all the, the Marines to cheer. So that was great. So, what you did and what Jim did, that was terrific. And that's yeah, that, the esprit de corps of the running group, you know, we're helping out other people for sure. I, Lisa and I wanted to also ask you, though, what was it like? It's humbling when you kind of identify within a certain pace group, like you always ran in the 815, 845 uh, pace group. And then suddenly, as you mentioned, you found yourself um, in a pace group that was two minutes behind that. And how how did you um, deal with that? And And what I mean by that is, I think there are a lot of people who not only identify with, well, I'm, I, I should be running this pace, but they also identify it with, I should be running with these people. So how, how was that for you and how did you reconcile those feelings? So I was just grateful to be running again and being, and my wife, if I complained, she would say, hey, you've got no reason to complain. You know, and so, um, and and my daughter's the same thing. And and I actually, you know, I met great people in um, in the other case groups. And I gradually moved up um, about four or five pace groups. And so I was meeting more people because if you're at the front of the pack in the pace groups, you often don't see all the great people. I mean, you see them, but you don't know them. And there was a another. I mean, a whole glossary of, uh, or, of ex experience stories I had not heard. And um, about, you know, there were a lot of school teachers. I learned a lot about the Montgomery County school system from, uh, where my daughters were not in it. So uh, as we were running, so frankly, it, it didn't bother me because I knew I was never going to get back up to where I was. I mean, when I PR'd at Boston in 2010, yeah, I had ambitions of trying to break three. 
you know, because I had progressively been going up. Okay, after my medical adventures, I knew that wasn't possible. But I knew it was still possible to become competitive in my age group. So that was my aim, not to be competitive among younger people. Because at my age, I mean, if you can just slow the rate of decline, you're doing great. So that's my objective. Love that. Also love that you recognize that there are so many benefits to running in different pace groups and we don't need to be stuck in a certain rut or a certain pace to not only expand our running ability but expand our ability to meet others who we wouldn't yes. ordinarily meet and that's such an integral part of running in groups is, is meeting people that you wouldn't ordinarily come into contact with so I love how you thought of it as opportunity versus a setback. And, yeah. and running okay. that, that pace clearly didn't slow you down in your racing because you continued to get, you know, come back to your faster times and qualify for Boston. So it's also an example of, you know, it's okay to run those easy runs and those long runs a little bit slower. Yeah. Well, and that's one thing I learned from the program is you can't hurt yourself by uh, running your long distance slower, right? I mean, you know. They don't give out prizes for the first age group winner in the Saturday long run. There are no medals for training. There are no medals for training. (laughs) Right. That's great. So Eric, what, what we really appreciate about you is, and we want you to talk a little bit about this, is how you have been able to adjust your goals and you don't sit there and think about, oh, I used to be so much faster. Um, you you kind of look at things moving, looking ahead versus comparing yourself to what you used to be. How do you how do you do that, and what advice do you have for others? Because everyone's going to have setbacks, and everyone's getting older. So what what is your advice to approaching running in a positive way? Well, I think well, one thing I found out that actually your age group competition gets smaller and <laughs> the more advanced you get in age. So, I mean, there is, though I'm, I mean, yes, I, I feel I'm competitive, at least locally within my age group. You're very competitive. I remember uh, once at the Chicago Marathon, and I think I came in fourth in my age group, but the winner in my age group came in 40 minutes before me. So, you know, that puts it in perspective. Yes, you're, you're doing well, but there are people way faster than you. And I think that's great because probably someone 10 positions behind me was saying that about me. And so, um, no, that doesn't uh, bother me at all. And I'm, I, I will be disappointed when I'm the only person in my age group, you know, because that's, um, but. um, Well, it's been interesting to see, I feel like, you know, as um, runners learn to stay healthy and and strong and and then as people get into running later in life, those older age groups are staying pretty big and and significant size. If you look 10 years ago at how many people were in the 70, 74 age group, there were maybe a couple and now there are a good number and they are competitive and they are fast. So I think that's a good a sign that um, people are either getting into it later in life or they're staying healthy and staying active. And I always remark at every award ceremony that we're at when those 
they call it the 70, 74, 74 to 79, 80 age group, how young they look. So I think it's a secret. I think that's a secret to staying young looking is keep running. Well, and we have an inspiration within um, Harold Rosen, who is probably five years older than me, and he's still out there running. Yeah. yeah, Harold's amazing, and he wins yeah. all of the age group awards, so it's a good right. thing you're not in the same age group, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> He's a sweeper. Yes, and, uh, and the fact that, um, you know, people just, they don't treat you as if you're old, and that's also nice. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're not to us. I mean, you're, you're not. You're young. You're running competitively, well, and, running, and you're... Yeah. You're being modest, but you're also competitive within other age groups. Like you're, yes, you're competitive in the 70, 74, but you're still fast in that you're competitive with people much younger still. So I think that's really remarkable. And so what are your goals moving forward? Why don't you share what, what they were until pandemic and what you hope they will be after this is over? Right. So I, um, I, last marathon I ran was Twin Cities last year, and that was my... <clears throat> 42nd marathon. 42nd? 42nd. Uh, technically, it was my 40th, but I've done two ultras, so I count them each as a marathon. I count. <laughs> you know, I, um, so I, and then I started thinking, hey, maybe I can get to 50. Um, and so I signed up for Tokyo for this year. That was going to be my sixth major. I signed up for Boston, and I signed up for Chicago, New York this year. And of course, all of them got canceled. So I've, had I been able to finish all of those, I would have been at 46. So that, you know, because you never know when something might happen to you and you can't run anymore. So, so I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a silly goal, but it's, I think it's reachable out there. It doesn't mean anything, but you know, um, some of my friends who, amazed I can even run one, you know. I think it's amazing, and I think you should absolutely count the Boston Virtual that you plan to run in September as one of them, don't you? Uh, we'll, we'll repeat something Dave McGilvery, the Boston race director, told us in our podcast with him when we talked to him this year. My race, my rules. Oh, so you have to decide. You know, it's your race, your rules. So I, I would say virtual. I mean, you know, it well, that's only if Julie's satisfied with my uh, performance there, because I, I have now trained. With, you know, she's trying to get me across the finish line. This will be the uh, third marathon. Well, Eric, I'm always satisfied with your performance because you do your best, and that's the that's all we can ask from people, and you do it with a smile. Um, but yeah, we, we are going to um, unequivocally say that a, doing a 26.2 mile run for the Boston Virtual should count toward okay. your 43rd third. marathon. How's that? Okay. Coming from uh, you, I can accept that. <laughs> what I really like, though, is when you approached us for coaching, um, one of the things you said is that you wanted to set a P, attempt to set a PR post-surgery. So I really appreciated that you looked at your life and your running sort of pre and post. And again, rather than comparing yourself to that PR in 2010, you looked at sort of where you are right now and set a new goal. And like Lisa just said, my race, my roles. Um, I feel like you do that a lot in your life. And I think that is really impressive. Well, and uh, certainly 
on the last, um, I guess since uh, December, I think I've been running more and running more consistently uh, than I have in the past. And I'm curious to see what that does. And of course, everyone knows that uh, any race depends on how you feel, the weather, the course. But I'm curious to see, and the virtual Boston, I mean, it's, it's clearly going to be different because you're not going to have the crowds motivating you and you're, you're probably going to run slower than you were capable of doing in a real race. But it'll be, it'll be worthwhile. And, I'm, and I will, you know, there, there'll be a lot of our friends out on the course also, both running and those who can't run or don't wish to run, you know, are going to be out there supporting because we're all family. Yeah. Absolutely. So do you mind if we pivot just for a minute? We had a question for you and we were curious, um, and this is a non-running question, but um, given your age, did, did you, um, do you remember or did any part of your childhood um, encompass the polio outbreak? And if so, how, what do you remember about it? So actually, uh, it did. I, I was in the, the only time I came to school in the States was for third through sixth grade. And uh, so this would have been between 1956 and 1960. And I clearly remember a, a boy in my class, we were together all four years, and we're best friends. His name was Larry Way. And he had two crutches and leg braces. Uh, and that's how I learned about polio. And we used to play um, uh, baseball. He would there be standing up with the bat in one arm and um, swinging it. And, you know, I'd be tossing him the ball. And we'd play for hours that way. And he never got discouraged. And then he would, you know, scoot off. But he had these metal leg braces, and my parents told me about it. And then I heard uh, about the iron lung machines. And they had to explain to me about what an iron lung machine was. And, and you know, you're a small kid. I, uh, you know, I was here from 8 to 12, I guess. And, and that was scary. Um, but and this is a, a very strange time now that um, I mean I don't I don't remember the polio epidemic you know that that well but they were you did see a number of people who uh, clearly had contracted um, polio and then were walking around with uh, crutches like braces the lucky ones you know yeah so before we go, we just wanted to ask you one last question, and this is kind of loaded, but um, feel free to answer it however you please. And that is, what have you learned from running? And what do you think running will look like once races return? So um, learning from running, I've actually um, learned that I'm capable of doing physical things that I did not know I was capable of doing and get great enjoyment out of it. And, uh, and I've also learned, and, and it's one thing that is reinforced by the pandemic because we cannot do it. I've learned the importance of 
social interaction with friends, how much we uh, depend on having contact with other people and, and just you know, friendships and a wide variety of I have no idea what racing is going to look like. I think we will never get to the, uh, I don't think as long as I'm around, but uh, maybe, you know, once if there's a vaccine and it's totally effective, maybe people will change. But where you have packed races, I still remember at Boston one year, I was packed at the start and I accidentally, as I started running, elbow someone standing next to me and I said I'm sorry and and I look at her and it was someone I know from my church here in Washington <laughs> and well, what are the chances of that only because I had accidentally elbowed her you know? <laughs> and we were so packed that she couldn't even see she must have been a little bit behind me and she didn't even know who it was so I don't think we're going to have those kinds of uh, races for the foreseeable future. But if we can even, and so racing may be also become more competitive because race organizers may have to find some way to select people so that uh, so they, not everyone will be there. But um, I hope they figure it out and whatever they figure out, I will go with the flow because um, we are truly privileged, and I feel even more so in my age, to do what we do. Um, and I can and travel and see a city running, which um, is great fun. And um, other people cannot see as much of a city as runners do. Absolutely. That's, I love go with the flow too, because that's really our only choice right now. I and mean, there's, yes, right. there's no point in getting, you know, upset or worked up about it because there's, it just, we have to go with the flow. There's nothing we can do about it. No, but uh, I'll, I'll stick to what um, Dr. Fauci suggests. And he's still running too. So he's, and he's yes, he's pretty amazing because he's incredibly busy. I think he actually said now he at night walking because his knees are bothering him. I, I just read something he said he goes at night. I didn't know if it was walking or anybody and his wife goes with him yeah. and he still because he said he can't go in the mornings anymore. So, you know, right. it's a typical runner conundrum of, you know, trying to get up and get ready for work and get the day started. When are you going to fit Correct. it in <laughs> yes. in the evenings? But yep. Um, yep. We'll, we'll trust his judgment because he's a fellow runner. Right. <laughs> he gets extra creds for, for being a runner. Yep. Yes. Yep. <laughs> in my book. Like we always say, when you go to a physician, you know, you should go to somebody who's a doctor who really gets you and gets your circumstances. Same thing. Take your advice. From exactly. He's a exactly. Yes. Yep. That's right. Great. Well, Eric, thank you so much for sharing just a little bit about your journey. I mean, there's so much more to your story, but unfortunately, we only have an hour. Sure. Um, but you you continue to amaze us, and we so appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing so much about your life. And we have no doubt that our listeners will learn from your wisdom and all the things that you've experienced and all of your comebacks based on your setbacks. And um, thank you. I know from I learned something today from listening to you and um, 
we, we just really appreciate you. And we feel really honored to have the opportunity to be your friends and coaches. So thank well, you. And, and I'm honored to be on this. I listen to every podcast when it comes out. And, uh, you can I've listen learned to a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I will not listen to mine. <laughs> I totally get it. I, I hate listening to my voice. So I totally understand. But but I know that your family, I'm sure I can just picture Alexandra and Sarah and Pamela listening and smiling. So we're really glad we had the opportunity to chat with you today. So thank you so much, Eric. And I look forward to your next update and final surge. Yes. Okay. Bye-bye, Lisa and Julie. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.